We're going to continue our study in the book of Matthew this morning. How many of you guys were with us last week as we talked about Jesus walking on water? This week, the story is going to take a bit of a shift as uh, this week we see Jesus actually entering into some hostile territory and dealing with uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that are coming up against him and confronting him. And so it shifts a little bit, and it's interesting. Um, some of what Jesus is getting into at this point in the, in the text is what's going to lead Jesus to the cross as these people are coming to him and confronting him on what they think are discrepancies in what he's teaching his disciples. And so I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into it. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that uh, you promised that we'll do the work that you set out for it to do. And so we just bear our hearts open to you this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would use your word, Jesus, to speak to the condition of our hearts. Um, Lord, I know all of us in this room come from different backgrounds. Lord, some of us have had crazy weeks. Some of us feel the tension right now in life of being pulled a hundred different directions by this culture and our jobs and just life in general. But I pray this morning, Jesus, as we seek your face and we want to honor you, Lord, I pray that you would breathe new life into us. I pray, Jesus, that we would see your word in new ways, that it would come alive to us, that it would not be just some fictitious story that we think we read of, but it would actually be the living, moving real word of God speaking to our hearts this morning. And so we give this time to you, and we pray, Jesus, that you'd have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. You guys with me? All right. Matthew chapter 15. So, like I said, this morning we're entering new territory as Jesus now is confronted by these Pharisees and these scribes. To set the stage for you guys a little bit, I want to do some background work to kind of get ready for the text before we even read it. Because there's a bunch of setup. You can read through this passage and kind of understand it, but not get kind of the full cultural context on what's going on. So if we go back a little bit, we go back to 586 BC. Uh, Israel's divided into two kingdoms. You have this northern kingdom called Israel. You have the southern kingdom called Judah. Judah gets taken into captivity by Babylon under the rule of this king named Nebuchadnezzar. 48 years later, they're given freedom. They're allowed to leave and return back to their land. And when they return back to their land from captivity, there's a couple really significant things that take place at this point. One, they build these walls around the city of Jerusalem. You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah. Two, they refurbish this temple that had been wiped out. And then they also begin to rededicate themselves to God's law, to the scriptures. There's this rededication process. They rededicate themselves to what we would consider the Old Testament, to God's law. So they begin to read the, the law of God again. And they, they, begin to, um, they begin to read it. They begin to share it. They begin to heed to uh, the law of God for a period of time. And then they start making copies of the law of God, and they, can, they start to get it into other people's hands so that there's kind of this renewal that's going on. And then the leaders of that time could speak, and they would read the book of the law. They would allow people to understand what it was that God was calling to him in accordance with his law. However, in addition to making these copies, to reading it, to proclaiming the law to others— there were these comments that begin to be made to the law of God, and they begin to add to the book of the law. So there's these commentators of sort that be these scribes that begin to commentate on the law of God itself. So if you have this sort of hard to understand passage, how many of you guys 
open up a commentary and you read a commentary to kind of make sense out of it. Okay, this is basically what's happening. They have the law and they're trying to make sense of it. They're trying to figure out how to practically walk out the law of God. And so these scribes and these commentators begin to commentate on the law of God and begin to prescribe ways for them to actually walk out, practically walk out the law of God. And so if there was a section they had read and, and they, would, they would begin and they, would, they didn't understand it, they'd begin and they'd be, uh, to commentate on it. And so, for example, we talked about this a few months ago, like God's call and the commandments to Sabbath rest. We talked about the fact a couple months ago that the question that they begin to ask when God calls them to Sabbath rest is, what then is work? So they begin to define work. The commentators sort of define work and figure out what it means to work and what it means um, to rest. And so another example um, is, is that they were called to be careful with regards to the food that they would actually digest, that they would eat. And um, sorry, uh, they would, yeah, they would, they would want to be careful with the food they were eating. And so they wondered how the food should be prepared. Be prepared. And so if they want to um, eat the food, then the food has to have a preparation strategy in order for the food to be um, kosher. And so they wanted to create this guide that would kind of direct them in the laws of God, but in the practical side of it. And so they create this guide, and then the people begin to practically follow the law through these guides that they had. And so in the law, they had made up the, these, these um, they had specified things that made things either you know, pure or impure. They had things that were undefiled and they had things that were defiled. And so they begin to ask the question, what defiles us and, and what doesn't defile us? And if in fact I'm defiled, how do I be cleansed? And so these scribes begin to commentate on passages in the law and give it more specification to help people walk this out. So over time, understand that these comments, they become traditions. These comments, they become rituals. They, they weren't just comments. They actually became revered by the people. In fact, in some circles, these comments became more revered than the word of God itself. I mean, that's also happening today, right? We read more books on the word of God than we actually read the word of God itself. And so we derive some of our theology and ide ideologies from books versus just going to the word of God itself. And so in some circles, again, these comments became more revered, revered than the word of God itself. And so over time, it became really hard to clearly define what was tradition and then what was the original law because God's law had continued to be added to generation after generation after generation. So one historian said this, by Jesus' day, the tradition of the elders had for many years supplanted scriptures, the supreme religious authority in the minds of Jewish leaders and of most of the people. The traditions even affirmed that the words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. And it became a greater offense in Judaism to transgress the teaching of some rabbis than to transgress the teaching of the scriptures itself. So these traditions were, were originally passed down orally from generation to generation, but eventually they're compiled and they're actually put into this book called the Talmud. And the Talmud is large. I mean, just to give you guys a little glimpse of this, my Bible is about 1,700 pages. The Talmud is 6,200 pages. Oh, five times the size of my Bible is the Talmud, and that's all the commentary on the law. It's all these additional traditions and oral traditions that have been 
passed down. And so it's huge. And so these Jewish people had to go to a place where the, the teachings in the Talmud begin to have more authority than the original law itself. They start to follow the Talmud. And so the, these different rabbis had figured that God had stopped revealing himself to the people of Israel as God did in the Old Testament. And so these rabbis then begin to follow their own derivatives of the law, and that in essence becomes the new law by the time Jesus comes onto the scene. Generations after generations of oral tra tradition and, and ritual passed down to these generations, and now they're following these rituals and these oral traditions, but they're not actually abiding by the law of God itself. They're listening to this oral law. And so with that as background, Matthew 15 is where we're at. And I want us to see how this passage is sort of centered on three conflicts that we're going to talk about this morning. If you're taking notes, the first one is this. The first conflict is the traditions of man versus the commands of God. So read with me in verse 1, chapter 15. He says, Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? So that's where we're getting this from. Why do they break the tradition of the elders, the oral tradition that's been passed down, for they do not wash their hands when they eat? So one of the things that stands out most of all in these two verses is that this opposition towards Jesus is not just ramping up, but it's getting full-on aggressive. It's even getting borderline offensive. Like, in other words, what we read in verse 1 is this group of Pharisees and this group of scribes coming to Jerusalem. And this is really significant for us because Jerusalem is sort of the center of all things religious at this time. And so this group is coming all the way from Jerusalem to Galilee, 75-ish miles to come confront Jesus. And so they go to this remote part of Galilee to confront Jesus, and they begin this combo with Jesus with the question that we read in verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders, is what they're confronting them with. They don't wash their hands when they eat. Like, what are they doing? They're making the teacher responsible for the actions of the students. Like, your disciples don't do that because you haven't taught them to do that. They're your disciples, Jesus, right? They, they don't wash before they eat. How can you let that happen? Jesus was closest to a Pharisee, honestly, because he had the oral traditions. He knew the law. Like, he was studied. He knew it all. And so for them to come to Jesus and say, you know the truth, you know the law, you know the oral traditions, why aren't your disciples washing their hands before they eat? And so they're frustrated. But Jesus, and I love this, feels no need to answer their questions. In fact, Jesus goes full counterattack on them and he asks his own questions. He gives this rebuttal. In verse three, he says to them, why do you break the, command, the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is, to be, is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. So basically, Jesus says, you're asking me, you're asking me why my disciples aren't following the traditions. While it's actually your traditions that are keeping you and keeping others from obeying the commands of God, is what Jesus is saying. And then he throws out this, the fifth commandment there, honor your father and your mother. So a little bit of background at this point, um, so you can appreciate what's going on here. 
it's not spoken of directly, but sort of indirectly, there's this call to honor your father and your mother that gets, that gets lived out by you and I when we actually take care of the needs as they arise. Your parents get older. If you're going to honor your father and mother, then you're going to take care of your parents. And that's why Jesus talks about this connection with this fifth amendment, honoring your father and your mother. In fact, this whole idea of taking care of our parents as they age is kind of laced throughout Scripture. I mean, you have 1 Timothy where Paul says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Like, pretty harsh, right? How many of you parents in this room are like, amen, you know, like, you guys are going to take care of me. So we have this call to take care of our parents as they age. Well, these Pharisees and these scribes were experts in the law, and so they were familiar with this fifth commandment. However, in order to get around not having to follow that law, they added this tradition of their own that exempted them from having to, fo to, to follow that out. And it was this tradition called Corbin. So if you look at Mark chapter 7, Mark actually refers in this story to this word Corbin. And what this tradition allowed you to do is declare something in your possession as set aside for God's use, is what that word means, Corbin. Set aside, a gift used for God, dedicated to God. And so if something was Corbin, you had a resource, a possession, you'd say, this thing is Corbin, and then you'd set it aside, and it was only to be used for God's purposes. So if you declared it Corbin, it couldn't be used outside of God's use. Like, in fact, it was forbidden to be used outside of God's use. And so let's say you've got some cash. Anybody in here have some cash? And one of you. And anybody, let's say you have some parents. Anybody in here have some parents? And you have cash and parents, right? And your parents are in need, but you don't want to help out your parents because you like your stuff, right? You want to hold on to your cash, and, and you want to go to Hawaii next month, or you got to put your kid through college, or you need a new car. And so what do you do? I don't want to spend the money on my parents, and so I call that resource Corbin. It's a gift for God's purposes only. So now I don't have to use it to honor my mother and my father, it's, gift, it's a gift that's only given, set aside for God's use. And so at, at that point, like the, the gift is no longer available. But here's the really crazy thing about Corbin. It is the Corbin resources, they actually stayed with you. And so if in the future you sort of determined that, that, that it would actually be better used for something else, you could go to your resource and you could say, Corbin, and it's back. All of a sudden it's yours again. Convenient, eh? Because you haven't broken the law of God, you just set it aside to be used by God however he wanted, and it was Corbin at the time. But that's the tradition that was started that allowed them this ability to not use the resources that they had to take care of those that were in their family. One commentator said that, said this, the tradition was not designed to serve God or the family, but it was designed to serve the selfish interests of the person making the vow. But do you see what's taking place over the centuries after this? Is that traditions that were originally meant to guard the law of God were now keeping people from God's law. It was prohibiting people from actually knowing and following God's law, which leads Jesus to say in verse 7, you hypocrites. He's saying, you actors, you phonies, you fakes. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, scribes and Pharisees, you're giving God lip service. You sing, you fast, you pray, you Sabbath, but all it's doing is masking your cold hearts. You're going through the motions. You're not doing anything more. And here's the thing. You may be tricking others because that's what traditions do, right? That's what rituals do. The acts of religions do. They trick others. They convince other people that our souls are good, that our hearts are good. Our passion for God is legit and on fire because we've done all of these things when our hearts can actually be growing cold and far from him. The reality is this, though is that we are not tricking God, right? Because he doesn't merely see the outside. What does God see? The heart. God sees the heart. And so at this point, something for us to wrestle with as we continue through this text is how is your heart? Like seriously, how is your heart this morning? Is it cold and hard towards God? Do do people look at you because of your traditions and your practices and go, oh man, like his or her soul must be really good because they've checked all the boxes on the outside. So the first conflict was this, the traditions of man versus the commands of God. The second is this, perceived defilement versus real defilement. So look at verse 10 and 11. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So this word defile is really important to this passage. It shows up four times in this text. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles them. So Jesus moves from talking to these scribes and Pharisees, and he calls the people to himself, this crowd to himself, and he says, listen up. He says, something I need to make crystal clear to you, what you eat doesn't actually defile you. And so give you, to give you a little more background and help you understand what's taking place, what is all of this stuff about eating and defiling and all of this type of stuff that Jesus is talking about? Well, it was held at this time that as you went through your day just living your life, you went to the marketplace, you, you went to somebody's house, you went to do this thing and do that thing, and throughout the day, you would become defiled because you've touched things, you've been in places, like you have become a defiled person, and so now something has to be done to make you cleansed. So if you were, if you used utensils that weren't properly cleaned, it would defile you in your home. If you came across a sinner, a tax collector, a harlot, a Gentile, you were considered defiled. If you uh, entered into somebody's house that, that was Um, defiled, you would become defiled. If you ate certain foods, that could defile you. And so, and so in your mind, like it was that, that defilement like needed to be washed off. Something had to be done to cleanse you because in the Jewish tradition, you're just a defiled person. And so you're going through the day, you're defiled, you grab whatever you, you did, you make food with this utensil or you eat this certain food, you put it in your body, you eat it, now you're defiled. And this was their mindset, that the value of ceremonial cleansing was held so high that one rabbi insisted that whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his common food with rinsed hands may rest assured that he will obtain eternal life. In their mind, they would be cleansed 
from the defilement and that that in and of itself would give them eternal life. And so we aren't just talking about hygiene, they're actually talking about spiritual defilement and cleansing. And so it, it wasn't just assumed that you were defiled by eating with unclean hands, but also that you were eating with unclean utensils, that you were preparing food with unclean utensils, and you were defiled, you were defiled by eating certain foods. And this is where the second conflict arises, because what Jesus does for this whole group of people, and hear this, for a whole nation, he flips everything upside down. And Jesus basically declares that our defilement, like this word that speaks of impurity and pollution and uncleanness, isn't an outside-to-in issue. Jesus is basically saying that it's an inside-to-out issue. What you're doing on the outside isn't doing anything to change the inside, but it's what's done on the inside that comes out that defiles a person. That's important for us to hear. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you saying this? And I absolutely love this passage especially in the world that we live in today, where offense has basically become the unpardonable sin, right? We live in a world where if somebody takes offense to something that, that, that was said, um, then, then what was said actually has to be wrong. And that's not always true. The Bible says that the cross in and of itself is offensive. Like we have to be ready to hear the words of Jesus and decide how or if we're gonna receive, we're gonna receive them. So quick tangent, as I was studying for this this week, um, I was thinking about the fact that we'll always respond to Jesus in one of two ways. And it's the same way that we'll always respond to other people in relationship. Either one, we'll approach Jesus in all humility, and we'll actually listen. We'll want to hear what it is that Jesus has to say to us. We want our heart to be examined. I mean, as we talk about the Word of God, being alive and active and like a double-edged sword dividing both bone and marrow, what we're saying is the word of God actually penetrates our heart. There's something that it does in us. And when he does that, it stings a little bit. And as Jesus confronts, as these Pharisees and, these, uh, uh, and the scribes confront Jesus and Jesus comes back at them, Jesus is, they're, they're reacting not out of humility and like what do we have to learn and what's our problem? They're not listening what they're doing is getting defensive. And how we respond to Jesus really does matter. Either there's some of you in this room that when Jesus confronts you with something, you read the word or whatever it is, you're challenged by something, you go, oh, well, well, um, you know, that's, that's not really the way it is. And we get all defensive and we wanna act like we didn't do anything wrong and not just humble ourselves and be like, Jesus, I have a lot to learn. But instead we get defensive when we run away. And in all honesty, if you look at every relationship in your life, if you've ever had relationships that have been on the rocks at times, you respond in one of those two ways in a relationship. Either one, you approach it in all humility. humility. What do I have to learn? What can I be taught through this? Should I listen to what it is they have to say? Is what, they say, is what they're saying actually a value? Or two, you tune them out and you justify your actions and you walk away in defense and it does nothing for you. And so these, watching the way that these Pharisees and these scribes respond to Jesus is just out of defense because they're afraid. They're afraid that all of a sudden they're gonna lose control of people. That now Jesus is sort of revolutionizing their culture. 
And it's the same way in our relationships with one another. If we're always offended and we shut down, we may never be humble enough to grow through that experience and make the changes needed for us to mature and grow. And I think it's such an interesting point in light of Hebrews 4, like I said before, that the Word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the what? The heart, is what Hebrews 4 says. So what if Jesus is pointing out in us, what if what he's pointing out in us is is in error? And what if we receive it in humility? we'll mature. But if we get defensive and walk away, we actually fail to learn. And so the Pharisees' response to Jesus is out of fear of what Jesus is teaching, that it's going to revolutionize the culture, that they're going to lose control of the people. And it really is the same with us today. Do we actually want what Jesus wants? If so, then stop being defensive. Be humble. Listen to what he has to say, even if it's painful. And so the disciples are worried that Jesus has now done it, that he's offended the Pharisees. And this one passage gives you this little glimpse into the fear of man that was in the disciples, right? And this is how Jesus responds to them. He answers, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, The father didn't plant the Pharisees, like they're part of the weeds, as we talked about earlier. And he goes on to say, verse 14, let them alone, they're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, I love Peter, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? There's often times when we come to the text where like our confusion doesn't come because we don't understand it, but because we're not willing to actually heed to it. Like, we say it's confusing when it's actually very straightforward. Like, to be radically honest with you, you go back to that passage with regards to Corbin and dedicating something to the Lord. How many of you in this room have have bought a house in the last 10 years? How many of you made this statement when you bought the house? I'm purchasing this house and I'm dedicating it to the Lord's use. Anybody say that? Only me? Okay. Um, You buy a house, you make a big purchase, whatever it is, you make a big move in your life, and you go, God, I'm dedicating this to you. And then the minute somebody comes to you and they go, hey, you think I can move in? You know, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, this is... This, this isn't the right time, you know, we're trying to figure things out. You just told God that you wanted to use that thing for his purposes. But we so often take these gifts that God has given us, we determine for ourselves how they need to be spent and be used, even though what we're vocally saying is these things are yours. Talk about conviction. Like, I, I, I honestly, I spent a good hour this week going through this and sifting through my own heart, going, like, where are the areas of my life, Lord? Because in, in essence, I've told you everything is yours, right? My money is yours. My, my marriage is yours. My kids are yours. Like, everything I have is yours, Jesus. And then your kid gets sick, and what do you do? Uh, 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 well, God, you know, you, you can have everything, but you can't have that. Or what about with, with regards to your house or how you allocate funds? Like, we constantly say that these things are for him, We express those things with our mouth, but our heart really reveals what's going on down in there, doesn't it? And so Jesus has this banter with him. And he tries to explain it. 
verse 17, it says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, I don't have to explain this to you guys, right? It goes into the stomach and it's expelled, right? That process is self-explanatory. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. There's that word again, defiled. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus could not be more clear. What defiles a person isn't the result of what you take in, but what's inside you already. What is in your heart? And I want you to hear this because this is as true today as it was to Jesus sharing it with with these guys 2,000 years ago. What defiles a person? What defiles us? What defiles you and what defiles me isn't the result of what we take in, but it's what's already inside of you, in our hearts, in our souls, the very essence of who we are. And Jesus is saying that our hearts, bottom line, our hearts are defiled. And how do we know our hearts are defiled? Because it's evidenced by what we say, what we do. It's evidenced by what we think. And so that's the list that Jesus gives in 18 through 20. What we do is evidenced by things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, and theft. What we say is evidenced in things like bearing false witness, deceiving people, lying to people, slander, how we talk about others. And then finally, in what we think. And it shows up in our evil thoughts, our lust the meditations of our heart. And so even though we would never, ever murder, listen to me, how many of you have ever thought about how good life would be without that one person? (laughs) But I'd never murder anybody. Life would be much easier if that person didn't exist. You know what I mean? So in our heart, it really shows the state of the heart. And in saying this, like, I, 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 you know, I come before a group like this, and I tell you, like, what's in you is defiled. Like, your very soul, your your very heart is defiled. And most people, I I don't know that necessarily agree with the statement, but I was reading through these, these, some recent polls um, this past week. And in one poll, this question was asked, do you believe people are inherently good in their core? In the essence of a person, do you believe that they're inherently good? Two out of three people said yes, inherently good. That same question was taken to a mainline evangelical conference and 76% of the people said yes, more than the people that were on the street. That people are inherently good. So how can you say that we are defiled when we're capable of doing so much good in this world? I, I mean, you look around at the images online, you look around at TV, social media, people around the world that are doing amazing things Jesus even readily admits that in our defiled state, we can still do a lot of good. And and that we shouldn't be surprised when we turn on the TV and we see what's going on around the world. But the question is, how is it that people who are capable of such good are still so capable of doing the most heinous things? How is it? How is it that someone who can give so many volunteer hours to coach his kid's team can turn around and cheat on his wife? How is it that that somebody can travel to Mexico, build a new roof on an an orphanage and do this amazing work and then turn around and steal from their boss? How, How is it that someone who loves and cares for their children deeply can lash out at their children in anger? 
How is it that someone who sings songs to Jesus with such passion in the morning at church can turn around and begin to slander the people that Jesus loves most in the afternoon? Why? I mean, if we're to consider the good, then don't we need to consider the bad too? I mean, how are acts such as these and so many more possible from the same people? Like, have you ever had a, like a spewing forth verbal barrage towards somebody you're close to where you just went at them, right? And then you get done lashing out at them and then in the aftermath, you say something to the effect of, like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened, but you need to know that, um, that that's not what's in my heart. It wasn't my intention. And you go, no, actually, that was what was in your heart. <laughs> like what you just said that just came out was actually in your heart. But where does it come from? And so I, I want to end by painting this picture for you that that is what Jesus is getting at here. That that comes from somewhere. And Jesus sort of answers by telling us that our words, our thoughts, our actions, that they aren't birthed in a vacuum. They actually come out of us. And that's why Jesus on one hand can say that our hearts are defiled and on the other that our words and our actions and thoughts defile us because these two sort of go hand in hand. And even if you do a really good job hiding from, hiding from others and wrapping it up into traditions and different rituals, what you think about will actually reveal what's in your heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at. It's an internal issue, guys. It's in there. You need to deal with what's in there. That's why these Pharisees can be sitting there saying, your disciples didn't wash their hands. And Jesus is going, your heart is rotten. <laughs> why don't you deal with the heart? It's like, I can't even think about that right now. You need to wash your hands. Deal with your heart. You need to wash your hands. Deal with your heart. And I think for some of us, we approach God like that, to be honest. We want to do all the platitudes and do all the things because in our mind, when we do those things, we're going through a ritual of cleansing ourselves to make ourselves feel better. But the reality is that the heart is still unconverted. It has not been changed. And the heart is what Jesus wants access to. The third thing is this, and this is the last, the worship team can come up, is supposed cleansing versus true cleansing. Um, as I had said before, the, the scribes and the Pharisees believed that if you're defiled, going through your day before you eat, you have to cleanse yourself. And so this is what they do. They, they would get a bowl, uh, they'd have this bowl at their house, they'd have this cloth, and then before they enter into their time for their, their dinner, their meal, they would literally pour the water from their wrist down their hand. The, the water needs to run through all the cracks and the crevices of their fingers. And then they wash both sides. And they continue to wash it to make sure that everything from the wrist down is completely cleansed and pure. And they don't just do this once. They actually do this in between each course of the meal. Talk about intense. Making sure that every spot, every section is covered. They want to make sure they wash it super, super well. And it was this detailed and time-consuming process that they're challenging Jesus on. They did, didn't do it just once per meal, again, several times. But what's the problem with this method? What's the problem with it? Is that the cleansing that we need can't be wiped off of our hands, huh? Like, you could try to clean every 
nook and cranny on your hands, and the reality is that everything on the inside can still be just as rotten. That's why Jesus will refer to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs at one point. The, the inside is rotten, but the old is all, or the outside is all cleaned up and looks perfect. So no matter the ritual, the, the process, or how often do you do it, no, no matter the devotion you give to it, it doesn't matter because we need to be cleansed from the inside. Like our souls, your soul has to be cleansed. And how can that happen? How can a soul be cleansed? How can somebody's essence, their heart, be cleansed? And there's only one answer to that, and it's the blood of Jesus. It's the only thing that can cleanse. The blood of Jesus is what cleanses our soul. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a blemish or a spot. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by what? The blood of Jesus. And so how are we cleansed, church? By his blood. His blood ransomed us. His blood, it cleanses us, it redeems us, it reconciles us, it freed us. Like that is his blood. Like if you remove the blood of Jesus, you remove the sacrifice of Jesus. If you remove the sacrifice of Jesus, you remove the cross of Jesus. If you remove the cross of Jesus, you remove Jesus altogether. And if you remove Jesus altogether, you remove all hope of our hearts ever being cleansed. It had to happen through him. And I love this passage because honestly, if there's one passage that we're gonna read over the next month that's gonna meddle in your lives more, you've got it right here. You can go spend an hour in this thing and probably consider multiple facets of your life that Jesus wants to work in, he wants some entrance into. And as I was reading through this this week and studying, I just kept thinking like, there's some of you in this room that never really understood the value of the blood of Christ. Like, why does the church talk about blood? Well, the blood is what cleansed you. His body broken, his blood shed is what has cleansed you from the inside out because you were a defiled person. By the grace of God, by the blood shed of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection power, you have been made new. And if you're here this morning and you've never bought into that, you've never had faith to accept Christ, to come to him and say, I want that gift, that real gift, the cleansing power of Jesus to atone for all of my sins, to cast my sins as far as the east is from the west, to grant me forgiveness and salvation and eternity. If you've never had that, this morning's the morning. But for you guys that are believers, there's a really good challenge in this passage for us. The challenge of what are you going to do with what he's giving you? How are you going to guard yourself from setting up so many fences of tradition and ritual in your life that you actually stop caring about what's going on the inside and you convince everybody else that you've got it figured out because you've done all the things? And three, can I at least just remind you this morning that there actually is power in the blood? 
that the day I gave my life to Jesus, what I was proclaiming was, Jesus, you do for me what I could never do for myself. Like, I'm so sick of trying. I'm tired of trying to make it on my own. And we literally spend our lives, even as people, as professed followers of Jesus, trying to cleanse ourselves, doing all the things and getting all the cracks and the crevices, doing it multiple times so that we can feel good about who we are and where we're at and convince everybody else that it's all good. But where is your heart? Where's your heart? Would you stand with me? Why don't you bow your heads? As we close in prayer, I just want to pray for those of you in this room that do not know Christ. Maybe today's your day. Maybe today's the day that you actually turn your life to him. You give your heart to him. You believe in faith that Jesus was the son of God, that he lived a blameless life, that he died a brutal death, not just to die a brutal death, but he did that in order to be a sacrifice on your behalf so that you could gain freedom, that you could be reconciled because what has God been trying to deal with since day one, you guys? The thing in you that keeps you from him, sin. He wants to banish it. So when you turn to Jesus and you receive his blood shed for you, he atones that for you. You are no longer bound to the sin. You no longer are looked at as as somebody who has a wall up between you and God, but you've actually accepted him and that wall has been broken down so you can be reconciled to your creator. So I want to pray for those of you that don't know Jesus and I want to pray for you Christians in this room, that there be a good reminder in this for us this morning of what an awesome thing that Jesus did for us. What an amazing thing that we couldn't do for ourselves. You pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for your church. I thank you for each individual in this room. As I know, God, there are things going on in our lives that are pulling us a hundred different directions. God, I know that there are some in this room that realize how far off from you they are this morning. They sense that there's a wall, God, that there's a blockage. And yet, Jesus, you have pinpointed where that blockage is at, and you've told us what the answer is to getting rid of it. And I pray, Jesus, that they would turn to you this morning, that you would banish that that wall, that blockage, that sin, Lord, that you would defeat it once and for all, and that you would grant them new life in you. For us as believers, I pray, Jesus, that you protect us from being a people that do a bunch of the right things and go to the right places and talk to the right people, but never allow our hearts to become converted in you. And I pray this morning, God, that there be even some in this room who have maybe professed you as Lord and Savior in the past in their lives, but have never actually surrendered their hearts. May this morning be the morning, God. I pray you'd have your way with us. And I pray, Jesus, as we exit those walls this afternoon, that we exit not just the same that we came, but we exit acknowledging that we are a people that hold a banner high, the banner of Jesus. We are a people that proclaim the blood of Jesus everywhere we go because it is the good news. And without it, we would be lost. 
And Jesus, we are a people that hold that banner high, not just to tout what it is we have, but to invite others to become part of it too. And so I pray, Jesus, that you have your way with us and through us. I pray that droves of people in our city would come to know you as a result of others in this room, walking them through the same process they went through to laying down their lives and accepting Christ as their Lord and Savior. Thank you for this day, Jesus, and I pray your blessing and anointing upon each person here as they leave. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.